Hi, Mom. Hey. Mom, I've been doing some thinking, and I have a question to ask you. Yeah, what's that? Where do babies come from? Well, they basically come from, um... What about the dinosaurs? Where'd they all go? Well, they... scientists sometimes say... Is that the end of the world? Is that gonna happen soon? And what's all the talk about interracial dating and marriage? I mean, what's the big deal? Can I be a Christian, but keep on struggling with the same sin? Is it possible for me never to have Jesus living inside of me? What's all the talk about homosexuality and gay marriage? Say when I'm older. Let's say I want to do smoking and drink and watch R-rated movies. Can I still be a Christian? Um... Wait, Mom, what about the moon landing? Did that really happen? I heard Bigfoot's real. Is this true? Hey, and what's the meaning of life itself? Uh, for those watching online, we want to say thank you so much for taking the time to watch and listen online. For those in the room, we want to say thank you for being here. Now, over the last few weeks, questions have been submitted, uh, things, uh, more clarifying questions about, hey, these are the things we talked about over the last six months. I have some questions, and uh, so these questions came in, and so we're just going to jump right in. The first question is, how did Zachariah convince Elizabeth to have a child while being mute? Hmm. Now, that's an interesting one. Now, in case you're kind of new to faith, new to church, um, Zachariah and Elizabeth are John the Baptist's parents, and John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. And so Mary, Jesus's mom, and Elizabeth are cousins. And so it's a very interesting story. Zachariah is a priest, and he has chosen to go into the temple to do his service. And while he's in there, he's burning incense. And in simplest terms, you know what that means? It symbolized God's people praying to him and prayers are ascending to him. Okay, so that burning the incense symbolized that. Notice what happens as he's doing it. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Like this sounds impossible. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. See, we see that Zechariah is made mute because he could not believe that he's going to be a dad. He couldn't believe it. He thought it was impossible, even though he was well familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah. So meanwhile, the people were waiting on Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple when he came out, he could not speak to them. 
they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. Now, could imagine getting home and most couples already have communication problems. So this, this is even making it worse. So after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. See, in that culture, there was a shame on women if they could not produce a child, let alone a son. See, in that culture, sons were prayed for as they provided a father and heir to pass their safety, legacy, security, inheritance down to Sons were important in that culture because men could reproduce without the potential of losing their life through childbirth. The male's ability to produce children was so important in that culture. With that being that case and the pressure on Elizabeth, they were going to keep trying until they died. Now look, regardless if Zechariah could talk or not, they were going to try. And maybe, just maybe, it made it a lot easier that he couldn't talk. All right, next question. So I actually put these as a set of questions because they all related to each other and they all kind of went together. Um, with the new covenant, there's no more Jew or Gentile, but either in Christ or not. Are Jews who deny Christ still under covenant protection as Christians? Should we advocate for the Jewish people or for all people to equally receive Christ? Is the body of Christ the new covenant Israel? Are Jews saved since they do not generally acknowledge Jesus as the resurrected Son of God? All right, so great questions. There's a lot there. Um, let, let's prime the wall before we paint. But I think it's important for us to take a step back and look at um, how we view the Bible. So there are two theological camps. Um, you have covenant and dispensational. So in the covenant camp, um, you believe certain things, right? You believe that God deals with his people through covenants. Um, God had a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with David, and then Jesus has a covenant, the new covenant, with the church. You also believe that all of these have been fulfilled in Jesus. Um, baby baptism is done to welcome babies of believers into the covenant of grace made with Abraham. And then the church is the true Israel, God's people. Then in the dispensational camp, there's a belief that God deals with people through seven dispensations or ages. You have the garden, you have the fall, then you have the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, and then the church. And then you have the millennial reign of Christ. All of these have been fulfilled in Jesus or will be fulfilled in Jesus. Um, they also believe that baptism is only for those who believe in Jesus. And the church in Israel have been and forever will be different. So I'm not a big, I'm not, I'm not a big label person. I think labels are, can be pretty dangerous. And here's why. No theological system is perfect. It's impossible to put the entire Bible into a system, into specifically in one system. Right? And there are going to be verses that don't fit. And although I can't get into all of those, I'll reference just a couple. So my friends in the covenant camp have a really hard time explaining Romans 9 through 11. That makes it pretty clear that Israel and the church are separate. 
They also have a difficult time with Acts 2 and Acts 16 that talk about people following Jesus, then getting baptized. And our friends on the dispensational side, they have a hard time with 2 Samuel 7. God makes it super clear that he's made a covenant with David. And then also Galatians 3.29 is pretty difficult for them because it's super clear that those who believe in Jesus are tied to God's covenant with Abraham. So over the last couple of years, you've heard me say this phrase, here but not yet, or now but not yet. There's a progressive fulfillment of God's plan. In other words, some now, more later. We touched on this in our Heaven series last year. We talked that Jesus came and he partially brought the kingdom with him. However, it's not fully here because our king is not physically present ruling as king. So here, but not yet, or now, but not yet. So with us being on the clock, let's look at um, just three of the covenants in the Bible. Uh, We'll look at two Old Testament ones and one New Testament one. So let's look at God's covenant with Abraham. Um, So some now would be anyone who believes in Jesus receives the blessing from God's covenant with Abraham. Like we're spiritual descendants of Abraham. And that's played out in Genesis 12 and Galatians 3. The land was partially fulfilled in phases throughout history. So Israel returned to the land after Egypt, um, the 40 years in the wilderness, then after the exile to Babylon and Persia, and then in 1948. Okay? The thing that we're looking for, forward to or later is the land would be fully fulfilled with God's stated boundaries that hasn't happened yet. And the other thing that hasn't happened yet is Israel is at peace among the nations because the Messiah is reigning, Isaiah 11 and Romans 11. Okay, let's look at God's covenant with David. Jesus was born from David's lineage. Jesus, with all authority, is seated at God the Father's right hand in heaven, waiting to return. Later, The thing that we're waiting for, the thing that hasn't happened yet is the earthly rule of Jesus as king or Messiah. And then Israel is at peace among the nations. Then you look at Jesus's covenant with the church, the new covenant. Things that have happened now is salvation. Like you and I, when we decide to follow Jesus, we are saved from the penalty of sin, but not the presence of sin. Uh, You and I, we are spirit filled. We are filled with this Holy Spirit to live in the blessing and commission of following Jesus as king. The thing that we're waiting on is our salvation to be complete. Like we receive a new glorified body and no sin nature. And then as followers of Jesus, the church, we become the bride of Christ who will rule and reign alongside of him. So in all of this, there's a clear distinction that Israel and the church are different. Notice what Paul writes in Romans 11. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. So early on, non-Jews, Gentiles received Jesus while the Jews rejected one of their own, Jesus, who was a Jew. And so that led to some pride. And so Paul's addressing that. Hey, guys, don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited that you got it and they didn't get it. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, quote, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob 
And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, so the whole point of the covenants was to show God using a people group, Israel, to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus, who would bless all nations, not just one nation. And through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are made one. It's called the church, and it's distinct from Israel. Think about it. The church is a multinational, multi-ethnic movement of Jesus followers. The church is likened to a bride. And in this case, the bride is married to the king, which means the church will rule and reign with Jesus. Israel is, is a single ethnic group of people physically tied to Abraham. Paul continues, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. So when it comes to the resurrection, the Jewish leaders covered it up. And the reason why they covered it up, because they knew that if it was true, it meant that they killed an innocent man, their Messiah. So in a sense, they were hostile to the message of the resurrection. Paul continues, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So when it comes to God choosing Abraham to bring about a people who would give birth to the Messiah, God is not going back on what he promised Abraham or what he promised David or what he promised Moses. He's not going back on it. He made a covenant and he's keeping his covenant. And God would send prophets as reminders that Israel, one day you're gonna have your opportunity. All right, look, since we don't know who is elected, we nominate everybody. Now, I, don't, I, don't, I don't fully truly understand how God's election process works. All I know is that we nominate everybody. We, it's important that our responsibility is to share the gospel until the time of the Gentiles is wrapped up. God knows everyone who will trust him and when that happens, he continues on with fulfilling the promises with Israel. Like there's unity as Jews and Gentiles are made one and saved in Jesus. However, the invitation to Gentiles to believe in Jesus doesn't mean that Israel would lose what was originally promised to them. For Jews who reject Jesus as a Messiah, they miss out on the blessing of being Jesus's bride. Like the tribulation that's talked about, that's not for the church. That's not for the world. In fact, that's actually for Israel. It's to make it clear who actually belongs to Abraham's physical seed. See, in the future reign of Jesus, the church is married to Jesus, the king, while Israel will serve Jesus as king. So I think that's really important. Israel and the church's relationship to Jesus is different. Alrighty, so let's move on to the next question. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, how do you teach kids boundaries based on biblical principles for them to use in daily life? It's a great question, and it's a very, um, how is, is subjective, and it can be subjective. So I'm gonna do everything I can to be objective as possible. Um, there's something that Solomon said, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And that's Proverbs 22, six. Like it's really important to remember that we view that more as a principle than a promise. Boundaries are key to getting our kids where they should go. And we're gonna look at the purpose of boundaries in a second. So there are a few steps. Before we teach our kids boundaries, 
we as parents need to resolve our own issues before we implement boundaries with our kids. Trust is vital to any relationship. I think we all agree with that. Boundaries are about trust. We're building the relationship and it takes time. More things are caught than taught. And you know that our kids will mirror what they see us doing. Even if we say don't do it and they see us do it, they're most likely going to do it. Yeah. Kids can spot hypocrisy a mile away and they do not fear calling us out. So, so I have a question, like, what is the purpose for you to give your kids boundaries? Like, what are they rooted in? Like, is it selfish desires? Like, you want your kid to do things that you weren't able to do or you weren't allowed to do? Is it, is it about control? Or is it rooted in God's values? See, the goal of boundaries is to, is to build into our kids a life of independence from us and reliance on God. So is your life reflecting that? Are your values God's values? All right, number two, it's important that we tell our kids most of the boundaries come from Jesus and the boundaries that come from us are rooted in wisdom. most of us in the room would agree with this statement that following Jesus leads to the best life. It does. It leads to the best life. Obedience leads to blessing and it leads to life, which is why God has given boundaries to his people over the centuries. And honestly, we really don't stop following Jesus's boundaries as we grow up. They ought to be constant in our life. Like, I don't know about you, but like, I've had to own it with Brooke. Like, there's no Bible verse that bedtime is 7.30. Like, I can't open up the Bible and like, all right, 7.30 bedtime. But I'm letting her know that it's based on wisdom and understanding that she needs rest like everybody else needs rest, especially on a school night. Uh, Number three, routines and schedules will make boundaries easier. Now, like for us, we have a bedtime routine. And we've had to change it over time. Like it's had multiple reiterations. Partly because there's some changes we saw in Brooke. Um, And so we had to make some changes when it comes to her intake of ice cream. And we're a family that loves ice cream. And so what we've had to do is we've had to cut back on how often she has ice cream. And so she's able to have ice cream on the night that she doesn't have school the next day. So she also needs to have it eaten by the bedtime routine. When you and I don't have routines and schedules, there will be times when we get in panic mode and all of us handle panic mode differently. Parenting rarely goes well when we're in panic mode. For me, I tend to yell and that doesn't go well. All right, number four, be quick to celebrate and correct. These are both really important because this is, this is how we teach. Like we ought to celebrate when they are doing what they should be doing or even owning, hey, I messed up, I failed, I need to correct that. And then we also correct with consequences when they don't do what they know they should do. All right, so it's really easy to fall in the trap of giving our kids the impression that we love them 
when they are doing what's required of them than when they stumble and fall. Because each kid is wired differently, both ways of teaching need to be applied appropriately. And here's what I mean by that. Some kids are people pleasers. So we need to monitor their heart attitude because it could be very unhealthy as they are living within the boundaries for the wrong reasons. Like they're being obedient for the wrong reasons. The flip side of that, we have other kids that desire more attention than others, so they are going to see if the boundary line will move. One way to celebrate, and I know this is what we've done, we've expanded her boundaries. We've expanded our daughter's boundaries. We've given her more responsibility and more independence if she's done really well with the little that she's been given, and then we begin to increase it. Um, Henry Cloud wrote in his book, Boundaries with Kids, this, children raised with good boundaries learn that they are not only responsible for their lives, but also free to live their lives any way they choose as long as they take responsibility for their choices. For the responsible adult, the sky is the limit. Alrighty, next question. Should women serve in the military? That's a good question. Uh, this comes from our series, Same But Different. As we talk through some God-given differences of men and women. Now, I spoke with several military service people about this question. And they told me that there are studies done and they have shown that men outperform women when it comes to fighting and surviving on the ground due to biological differences. Each person said this. They would prefer, if they were wounded, they would prefer a man rescue them. When it comes to women serving, um, each person explained that they would Expect the woman to test and perform at the same level as a man. At the end of the day, there are unique rules for men and women to serve in the military. There are rules specifically designed for men and rules specifically designed for women. Alrighty, final question. Um, I saved this for last and the reason why is because I want to make sure that you listen to what I said because this is one that we most likely will agree to disagree on. Um, should Christians attend a same-sex wedding? So in recent weeks, um, there's been a lot of controversy about this within networks and denominations. Um, a well-known pastor with a large influence among conservative circles provided a grandmother who called into his show advice to attend her granddaughter's same-sex or trans wedding. Um, it seemed very clear um, that not only does she agree with it, but the granddaughter knows that she disagrees with it, yet she still invited her to attend. Now, this wasn't said, but I have an inkling, knowing that I've done a lot of weddings over the last 20 years, that most likely it wouldn't surprise me if they wanted to honor the grandmother. Not that she would be a participant, that, but they would honor her like they do in weddings. So the pastor tells her to attend the wedding and bring a gift, specifically a Bible. And quote, this is what he says, Well, here's the thing. Your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said, These people are what I always thought. 
judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything. So simply, his advice was that she would be there for her granddaughter as a non-participant because she's already made it clear that, it, that she does not agree with this. He made it clear that this wasn't a blanketed advice to everybody, that this was specifically to this grandmother. So this went viral with everyone having an opinion on it. And y'all, we need to be careful that we disagree without condemning. And there's a lot of condemnation. And there ought not to be. We could disagree without condemning. Um, my LGBTQ friends um, are either affirmed or they're reviled. Our response as followers of Jesus has to be different, which is why the pastor desired one of compassion instead of condemnation. And this is, the, I mean, he was willing to, to go on that. He was willing to err on that side. And we've talked about this over the years. And we talked about this in the same but different series that marriage is a covenant between a man and woman for a lifetime. A wedding is the ceremony before God, family, and friends that initiates the covenant. Now, I would say that the majority of people who get married do not see it as a covenant. They see it as a, as a contract. Or they see it more like a contract than they do a covenant. That's probably a better way to say it. I also know that all of us in this room would agree that weddings are celebrations, right? It's a time that we celebrate. Ironically enough, there's been several weddings that people have asked me to read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. And that's a passage from the Bible that is read a lot at weddings. And it talks about love. Love is this and love is that. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 reads this. Love does not delight in evil or wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, it sounds like evil is a strong word, but Paul intentionally uses it. It also means wrongdoing. I know that we don't like to talk about it, but doing things outside of God's design is wrong. It's the opposite of right. It's impossible to rejoice at a wedding ceremony of two people of the same sex because that is outside of God's design, but I'm not just going to stop there. It's also out of God's, outside of God's design for a polygamous ceremony, a ceremony of an abuser to a victim, and a ceremony of a follower of Jesus with someone who is not a follower of Jesus. So for me, and I'll let you decide what to do. This isn't. This is this is what I've decided to do. Um, this has more to do with marriage than it has to do with the person. So going to a wedding is different than going out to eat with someone. Going to a family or a union with someone is different than going to a, a wedding. So I'm, I'm committed to doing weddings of those who are spiritually matched. So a man and woman who are followers of Jesus or a man and woman who are not following Jesus. That is what I've committed to doing. 
when it comes to attending, I've also made the decision not to attend any of those weddings that I just talked about. Because by doing that, I'm affirming to those inviting me to their wedding. And I don't agree. And, and I specifically don't agree with someone who is a follower of Jesus marrying someone that's not a follower of Jesus. Because what happens is there's so much tension, specifically when it comes to raising kids. You see life differently. It's very hard, it's very painful, and the majority of counseling sessions that I have have to do with people who are not, not walking the same way when it comes to their faith. We have family members. It's interesting. We have, a, we have a family member who they know how much we love them. They don't doubt that we love them, but they also know where we, what we believe about marriage. And so we weren't invited, and it's not because they didn't honor us. They knew that we wouldn't go, and yet we still talk with them. They know that if anything, if they ever needed anything, we would drop everything and help them because we love them, and they know that we love them. So a question I want to ask is, do people know that you love them? Do the people in your life know that you will drop things to serve them and help them, especially when it's inconvenient for you? Do people know where, where you stand with them when it comes to that? It's interesting. We have gay family members, and they know where we stand, but they know that we love them. And they don't, I don't think they question that we love them. So this is, this is up to you. It's your decision. We may agree to disagree. My hope for you is that people would know where you stand with them and where you stand with God. That has to be super clear and super upfront because honesty is so important and trust is so important in a relationship. Uh, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're incredibly thankful for this opportunity to look at these questions. I hope that they've been encouraging um, the responses have been encouraging to the people who have asked them. Um, Father, I ask that as we get into our relationships this week, that we are super clear of where we stand with you and where we stand with people. Like people without a doubt know that we love them, that we care about them, and yet we're not compromising our relationship and our commitment to you. So Father, I ask that we have just an attitude of compassion, an attitude of love, um, Father, help us to handle situations with both truth and grace. Help us to do everything we can to point people to the best life ever, and that's a life with you. So, Father, help us in our conversations this week. In Jesus' name, amen.